or we can we can we can find like a common relation based by just by their looks. But I also see how if 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 I'm passing strangers, there's a lot of like these judgmental thoughts, and they're quite funny sometimes. They become like really funny. They can be quite aggressive as in like self-defense, like attacking somebody before they attack you. I can associate that with like anxiety now. I can see that's been a big part of like why anxiety even arises later on and you don't even notice it. It's just those little attacks throughout the day as you're walking, as you're waking, as you're attacking your environment constantly. So that's like something I really noticed. And yeah, I just found it quite fascinating. I've been seeing this for a while, but but recently more so I can correlate it with like deeper anxiety throughout the day, which builds up. I can see how these small attacks build up. Mm -hmm. um, there is several things to say about it. And uh, to start off with that, you can, in fact, see that our thoughts of revenge are actually thoughts of doing someone harm. And in having harm happening in one's mind, that also triggers the self-protection mechanism within oneself, because we're thinking of harm and being harmed and inflicting harm, and maybe not even having the thought of, well, what will he do back? But sort of instead a dread and so uh, thoughts of revenge or thoughts of cruelty are definitely and most easily the, the um, unwholesome thoughts that can be seen as unwholesome. Those are the ones that are the easiest to see as unwholesome. But most people only see them as wholesome in a um, uh, conceptualized way or an intellectual idea or uh, it sounds right or it feels good to understand that thoughts of cruelty are unwholesome thoughts but now you're moving a little deeper into it to the actual experience that these unwholesome thoughts these thoughts of cruelty harming someone getting your revenge or whatever actually has an influence that's fairly predictable and is uh, fairly quick in its operation. Only a few seconds later do we begin to feel bad after we're having thoughts of cruelty. That in fact, we may even go so far as to wince when we think of thoughts of harming someone because that we recognize immediately that that's a painful thought. So, oh. And so uh, the way to start to deal with these is first off to recognize that we're already in the habit of doing that, that we set up these issues of revenge in childhood. And then every time as we're growing up, we have some sort of conflict, we'll begin to revisit those revengeful thoughts and start thinking of cool things to do to someone else. And every time we do, it's like an ouch. It's like sticking our hand in the fire, but we don't think that that fire is coming from 
um, <clears throat> those thoughts because, in fact, those thoughts are often delicious. We like it. We like to think of someone else having pain. There's even a word for it in German. They call that Schordenforder or something like that. I'm not German, but I've seen the word. And it means taking delight in someone else's issues. But mostly that word applies when the news comes out with some politician that's in the other party has a bad day. And then we delight in, in him having a bad day. But there's a deeper level of it down to the level of the thoughts that we actually delight in thinking about harming those who have harmed us. And so we can recognize the delight. In fact, there if had been no delight, no pleasure, no value in having thoughts of revenge all these years, why would we keep doing it? So in reality, we recognize that we do get some value and benefit out of it. It feels good to get even. We call it justice. Hmm? That's what it's all about is he's done me harm. And now I am the comma machine that's going to do him back. <laughs> And we kind of like that power. We like that position. Uh, Sorry and, to say, uh, 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 just really quickly. It's also like I noticed is there's a lot of like scanning and looking what's wrong with the environment. So you're always feeling threatened by everything. It's like you're in a constant state, like what you would call anxiety. But like this is constantly looking for a problem actually causes even more anxiety because now you have to watch out for that person and that person and that person and, and somebody's behind you and then somebody's walking past you. And it just goes on and on and on. Hello, Cap. Glad to see you. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can I hear you. Oh, maybe you can't see me because my reception is really horrible here. Wait, wait. I can uh, see the feet. I can see where you're walking. Oh, maybe my camera's the in the wrong way. Yes, there you go. Now you just switched it. Oh. Switched it back. Oh, I can't even see myself, so I don't know what what you see. I see the ground you're walking upon, and I see the shadow of the sun behind you. And now I see your thumb on the camera. Now I see Glenn, your eyes. Now okay. you're correct. Julio, hey, 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 yeah, I was, um, yeah, I didn't, I just got a notification I, uh, about the Sangha, and I was like, hey, I'm going to walk out, and, because I can't really call right now, it's really busy inside, so, we're here. Well, welcome. We're, we're talking about one of the primary sources of anxiety. Yeah. And that is, is that we get in the thought process of problem solving and we go around looking for the, uh, the solution by looking for our perceived cause, which often winds up being an individual. And so the next uh, illogical thought is that, oh, this guy is the one who harmed me. 
And then the next thought is getting even, even Stephen. Let me find out what I can do to get even with this guy because he's the one that made me feel this way. Now, I know that this sounds like very childish thinking, but guess what? We developed this habit when we were children. <laughs> and that we take gratification out of those feelings, the feelings of revenge, the feeling of getting even. <clears throat> but we don't recognize that, in fact, that having thoughts of danger, having thoughts of getting even, thoughts of harm, thoughts of things like that, actually triggers the self-preservation instinct within us. In a way, we're, it's not that individual that we're thinking of harming. It's just the thought of it. And so the thought of harming and getting harmed and being harmed and all of that is just inside one's own mind. And that's then what triggers this self-protection mechanism that we protect ourselves from the harm that we're creating inside of our own mind. And there's that loop that the Buddha speaks about in the sense that we can recognize that uh, now, at least intellectually, we can see that thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of harm, thoughts of revenge, thoughts of getting even, and all of that kind of stuff has an immediate downer effect upon us. But this is possibly one of the primary sources of anxiety is thinking about what can go wrong, especially with someone we want to have something to go wrong. But that's not the only uh, way to do it. That's just one of the common ways. Another one would just be looking for a problem to solve so that I'll feel better. And we, we don't feel good because we recognize, well, I'm uptight and I'm tense. So let me go think of something to get rid of it. Not recognizing that we're already in now in a state of not liking and wanting to push away and get rid of something that now we're kind of stuck with. It's almost like the more we tug all we're doing is just, you know, like beating our heads against a brick wall or just pulling on something and getting tired, but it's not going to move. That we're, in fact, it's, a, it's our tugging that is the problem. That's what's getting us all worn out and tired inside is, is that tugging that we're doing, trying to solve a problem. And so the, the, the way of doing that is to recognize problem solving can be unwholesome. Now that's different than creative thinking, that I'm all in for creative thinking, having ideas, putting things together, mulling the facts over and whatnot like that. But that's different than problem solving. Why? Because whether we implement it or not is irrelevant. But with problem solving, we feel the need now the want, the desire to solve that problem. And because we want to solve the problem, now we're feeling insufficient, not good enough. Here comes that survival instinct popping up again. Oh no, we're in danger. Well, in fact, we created the danger in our own mind and we don't see that happening. 
until we start to look for it. To see that these are unwholesome thoughts. We've gotten two of them now. One would be thoughts of cruelty for another person. The second one is um, generalized anxiety or problem solving. And uh, there are many others, and including what aboutism. In fact, that's one of my favorites. What if this happened? What if that happened? What about that? And and we go around having all kinds of things going on. In fact, uh, you'd be surprised at how much mental smoke and burning energy is in the phrase in the American's mind of when is Donald Trump going to get arrested? I immediately I immediately had to think to think about Anna. What is that? What? I didn't do, like that. Do you do you remember your student Anna? Yes, I know Anna. Yeah. I immediately had had to think about it. This is the core the core problem with this Eastern thing, always stuck in stuck in this really really. Ah, you're actually talking about I think one of the next ones, which is basically it's part of the what aboutism. Oh, that bomb went off 60 kilometers from here. What if it goes off here? Now, the reality is, is that if the bombs are coming close, the right thing to do is to take a hike, leave town, get on the train while the trains are there. But to take a hike, and there have been millions of people who do, but there's millions of people who will stay put and then fear the bombs. Now, the people who left are fearing the unknown. So most of the people who do leave, they wind up being okay. At least they're still alive. So Eastern Europe right now is absolutely full of whataboutism, just like the Americans are. And everybody hurts about the same amount. How much is that? much as they can. <laughs> and so the mind goes on and on and on about these things, about, oh, what if that happens? Or what if this happens? And the reality is, is that if we open our eyes right here, right now, we can tell whether bombs are coming or not by listening. And if you hear that faint, I mean, long ago, Uh, bombs when they were coming made a, a whistling sound. I don't know what they sound like now. Some of them are hypersonic, and so you're not going to hear anything until it lands. But guess what? If you know it lands, you survived. The ones that get you, you don't even know it. <laughs> and yet people will jump out of their skin out of fear. By the way, that happened here several years ago. When everybody was kind of sitting around on the floor, it was e evening and the sun was going down and we had an enormous thunderstorm come up. And then we had the crack of lightning that was so bright that it lit up all four corners. Everything was, was white with the light. 
immediately following, not even a second later by the boom. So this thing was like within 100 yards or something like that. And I kind of knew it was going on. I was being aware of it when that thing happened. Made a lot of noise, but I'm sitting here watching everybody, especially the dogs, jump into the air about two feet. <laughs> That's how fast this stuff is. Not the lightning, but the fact that the dogs got really freaked out in a hurry. And boy, were they up. So, if we recognize that that can happen big time like that, very fast, we can recognize that happens in our own mind really fast, too. We can have those thoughts of cruelty. We can have the thought of that bomb going off. But then all of a sudden, our whole system is flooded with chemicals that are designed around light or fright. Because that's exactly how we grew up as a species a million years ago, 500,000 years ago. That the things that we were afraid of then, if we were afraid of them and saw them before they saw us, if you see a rhino before it sees you, you're okay. Why? Because you will freeze with fear. And then he can't see you moving. And so these are instincts that are built in, and these instincts really keep us alive. Every one of us would clutch ourselves to death. We'd walk off a, a high place. We'd reach too far. We wouldn't watch where we were going in the bathroom when the floors wet. All kinds of things can happen, and every one of us would be dead, except for one thing. The survival instinct keeps us alive, and its message is that of fear. The problem is, is that we set this thing off too often. There's too many false positives. And the worst part of it is, is that this uh, narrative of freeze, then all the pumping of the adrenaline and everything gets you ready for fight or flight. Except that in our society now, this is an internal thing. Where are we going to get up and run to? What are we going to fight? We can get freaked out about the um, um, the boss walking down the hall. We can notice out of the corner of our eye, here he comes, and we can freak right out. But you better not run, and you better not fight him. <laughs> what are you going to do with all of this adrenaline that we've got in there because of this whataboutism? Oh, no, the boss is coming. Something must be bad going to happen. And so... Uh, we can, in fact, begin with our practice to just sit quietly and begin to see these kind of thoughts bubble up. Thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of things that can go wrong, thoughts of uh, uh, wanting something that we don't have, and then that creates that anxiety inside. And now we have a panic attack and we don't even know where it came from until we begin to watch. Yeah, and recognize um, that I fought my way into this bag of anxiety. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, and um, sometimes. Oh, sorry, does it? Hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a uh, sometimes a certain uh, person just seeming like let's say I'm very calm or something I'm very just feeling very grounded and calm um like I'll be around a group of people and let's say someone just comes in or whatever 
It's like this whole new person seems to like surface up so much inside of me out of nowhere, you know? I'm like, it just it pops out of nowhere. It's almost like just a total, it feels like an intrusion, but I know that's just a reflection in my mind and it's a whole new appearance. And there's like, there's no, you know, it just comes like a bomb, like you're saying, like a hypersonic bomb, you know? It's uh, it's silent, <laughs> it's deadly, and it just, it just blows you up. And yeah. it's like, wow, you know? You have the feeling to reestablish yourself. Mm. Mm -hmm. yes, yes, actually, yes. actually, what, what uh, we can say about that is, is the person that's coming into the room that sets you off is exactly the same kind of feeling that they have with the incoming bombs in Eastern Europe right now. It's all of a sudden danger. One moment everything is okay, and the next fine moment, and now we are in danger. It's a mechanism that has kept us alive for many, many, many generations and many species. And so we can't just disregard it. What we can do is learn to control it. What we can do is, <clears throat> is to tweak it and set it straight so that we're it's appropriate in the sense of we could begin to see what is dangerous wisely without having to get close enough to it to actually feel fear about it we can kind of keep it at arm's distance no i don't have to become afraid of that but i know that if i let myself i will And so this is a very good part of the practice is beginning to see what kind of thoughts it are that give us these anxiety attacks. And, and you've got a clear one there. Oh, I get anxiety attack when somebody walks into the room. How many years have you been doing that? Mm. My whole life. <laughs> Pardon? My whole life. <laughs> Ah, well, no, you didn't do it the first day you were born. In fact, you were too busy uh, struggling for breathing. Okay. Well, something happens to me a long, long time ago, something bad. And now I, you know, something in a social situation happens to me. Let's like, and then I start to form all of these, mechan I guess, defense kind of preparation for the future, preparing never for it to happen again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Freud knows all about it. <laughs> That's the whole idea that most of the traumas that we have are had in childhood because a young child is a victim to almost everything. But as we grow up, you can handle people walking into the room as an adult. But when people walk into the room, you immediately fall back into those childhood fears. Because that's the habit. You've done it so many times. And not only that, but it's kind of comfortable, um, how to say it, method of operation. Because if you play dead or play victim, then they won't bother you too much. Yeah. <laughs> and so there we find value also. We find value in playing victim. So that the, uh, maybe the bully will avoid me or whatever.
but we do pick that stuff up in childhood. The interesting question is, and it's got a really interesting answer too. The interesting question is, do you know that that incident? Is this part of your memories that you actually remember when this happened, this kind of tragedy? That's when you made the decision, oh no, disaster, here comes somebody. You remember? Yeah, it was mostly my father when I was a kid, and then it it evolved into like people in school and kind of bullies and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you started having that feeling possibly when you were two or three years old, and then when you got into school, that became your method of operation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, guess yeah, what? Yeah. The actual answer is it doesn't matter so much whether you remember it or not. But the one thing for sure that we can understand that it was you who chose to feel that way the first time that you had that issue with your dad. It was not your dad's fault. Yes. Even if he. Oh. Has benefits. Now you're back. Oh, you caught out for like the last 10 seconds or so. Oh. Others can hear you. I can't hear any sound. Maybe that's just me. Can you hear me? Anybody can hear me? Now we can. Huh? Yes. No. Okay. All right. Okay. You can hear me? Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at my audio screen to see if there's something wrong. Uh, but you can hear me now. Is everybody? Okay. All right. What we were talking about then, uh, and by the way, if somebody can't hear me, please immediately let me know. Okay. So what we were talking about before is, is it's not dad's fault. This was the child making that choice at that time because he possibly had already made the decision, oh, if I wimp up, dad won't haunt me. So we can say then that children, as children, we all make some pretty stupid decisions. And then we repeat those decisions over and over and over again until they become a habit. And then we make those same stupid decisions over and over and over again throughout life. And so this is where Anapanasati comes in, as we can begin to see this 
these feelings that come with this thought of someone comes into the room or thoughts of cruelty or any of that kind of stuff, we can see those unwholesome thoughts as unwholesome, that they're dangerous. But they're, they, yes, we recognize that they have gratification. But once we see the danger in them, we'll begin to get, be on guard so that we can avoid those thoughts without ruminating and ruminating. We can say, hey, I would rather feel better right now and enjoy this present moment than beat the crap out of my old teacher in my own mind. So. This is just so many different ways that we can see these unwholesome thoughts as unwholesome thoughts. And as we do, we're not talking about seeing them that way intellectually or uh, conceptualize the way that we're talking about it here. But when you can actually see that flood of adrenaline coming into your body simply because you had thoughts of cruelty for someone. Or a thought of some sort of danger. And almost immediately that tightness is there. It's almost like the tightness comes and then you say, well, where did, I? yeah, I know where that came from. That was only a second ago that I had that thought. And so we begin to catch them that way. And then we can have the reassuring thoughts of, hey, I do not have to anxiety myself up just because I had a thought. And I can have a new, another thought of no anxiety, not right now. I'll do okay. Everything is all right right now. I don't have to hate that person anymore. It's probably somebody in my past. And we drudge them up and try to make them responsible for the problems and the way that we feel right now. And then we want to bust their gut or their chops in revenge. And by doing so, we're just punching ourselves in the face. It's us that feels the benefit of those thoughts that we're having. So weird. And so, pardon? This is so weird. <laughs> it reminds me of that. It reminds me of that quote. It's like hating someone is like drinking poison, expecting another person to die or something like that. You know, when you hate someone in your mind so badly. Poisoning yourself, hoping. Because you're the one who's drinking the bottle of the poison of hate. Yeah. This guy, probably he's just watching uh, uh, cartoons and having a blast. And he don't care what kind of uh, hatred that you're going through right now. (laughs) (laughs) Or what kind of dangers that can happen when somebody walks into the room. Or any of those kind of thoughts are unwholesome and it makes us feel uptight because the underlying feeling is a feeling of fear. Because we are in a state of danger and we don't know it. The body knows it. The back of the mind knows it. And now that we're watching with Anapanasati, the frontal part of the mind is going to know that stuff too. We want to watch it and you say, aha, I see you. <laughs> I see myself wanting to hurt someone and I don't have to do that. And I can just enjoy the moment and come back 
But we had to practice that over and over and over again because we are well rehearsed and well practiced in our uh, favorite form of anxiety producing future events. I'll beat him up in the future. I'll get bombed in the future. Somebody's going to walk into the room in the future. But right now, nobody's walking in the room. No bombs are coming in. I really can't get a hold of him by the throat so that I can do what I want to do with him. So set him down and leave him alone. <laughs> and come back to the present moment over and over and over again. And pretty soon we start to change the habits that we're having so that we have thoughts about how nice things are rather than thoughts of, wow, I feel bad. And I know that if I punch that guy up, I'd feel better. Because you already feel better. <laughs> we don't have to get the results of um, having those unwholesome thoughts and getting the benefit out of it because now we see that there's dangers there and that we can have wholesome thoughts instead of unwholesome thoughts that are, um, in a way, gratifying without the danger. And so this is the teaching of the Buddha about gratification, danger, and escape. That we can't escape from those thoughts only when we see the danger. And we're not talking about an intellectual kind of danger that we see in advance. We're talking about right here, right now, I can see having that thought. Right now, that one, yeah, I see you. <laughs> And then we can change it because we can see it right then and there. We can see the danger in it. We can see the uh, uh, the one downsmanship that we are playing. Always punching up and recognizing that, hey, if we were already on top of the situation, we wouldn't bother to punch down. And if we can catch ourselves with this punching up and recognizing we don't have to do that, we're already okay, then that gives us the change of attitude from being a victim of the way that we feel into being the lion, being on top of the situation, knowing that we can handle it. Huh, anxiety? Yeah, I know what that was. Because there it goes. <gasps> out you go. Out, out. Don't have to think about it. In fact, the time that it took me to say all of that was took long, longer than it does just to take a deep breath and out it goes. I know where that thought came from and out it goes. Because everything right now is okay. But it takes practice because those thoughts will come in and they'll grab you by the throat and you think that you've got somebody else by the throat. And so we have to wait to wait. Look at what we're doing. Go ahead, Carl. Is it practice or is it knowing of the mechanism? Like I see it almost like as uh, assembling a clock. If you don't know the parts of the clock and you don't know which parts can hurt the clock, then you cannot see which thoughts can hurt you. Like you have to like wake up to them to know them enough. And I think practice is the right, but as, as well like knowing the mechanism of it. Okay. Well, here's another way of looking at that clock. 
a recognize that the clock is a mechanism, just like the brain, and the job of the clock is to go tick, tock, tick, tock, happily ticking along, talking along, tick, tock. But when the clock is not doing tick, tock, it's going boing or something like that, or maybe it's just dead. Now we need to investigate that clock. We can go ahead and commit suicide, just throw the clock out, or we can, in fact, investigate it. We can actually go so far as to take it apart, clean it out, brush it off, readjust the jewels, set them back into motion, put every gear back together. I mean, you've seen them do that with Rolexes on, on uh, YouTube. And they'll put that turkey back together again because they're noticing what they're doing. They've got the skill to do it. They'll put a new face on it, a happy smile. And they'll put that watch right back together, and now it's ticking right along again. Tick, tock, tick, tock. Well, in our case, the only difference between that clock maintenance, which may take a, a skilled locksmith or clock uh, jeweler a, a day or two to do, we're going to do that in about three seconds or less. The first thing we do is we recognize that clock ain't ticking. The next thing we do is bang, and then it starts to go tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> All we have to do is just nudge it, and it'll start running again. It'll start ticking again, and we don't have to get stopped up on, oh, no, somebody came in the room. Or, oh, no, something bad will happen. Or, oh, no, I'm going to beat the car out of that guy or any of those kind of thoughts come up to stop our clock. We can see those things and recognize, hey, the clock just stopped, and here I am, dead meat. Why don't I give it a shove into the wholesome and get it going again, ticking right along. So there's your analogy for a clock. What do you think of that one? <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds like it. So this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to clean our clock. Remember to clean your own clock. To throw out the garbage, throw out the, uh, the grit between the gears. Because everything's going to just tick right along. Everything's okay. Everything's all right. No problems. No worries. Got this wired. We're the boss here. We know how to kick a clock. And so this another, is the attitude that we develop. Go ahead. Uh, so another thing when we were talking about people walking into the room and feeling that initial anxiety, uh, we talked about like a couple of perceptions of seeing, seeing everyone as a friend, as not a threat that can be quite like a helpful tool of like elevating yourself into into a happier state instead of seeing people as a threat you can see them as a friend uh, an old friend walking into the room or there's scenarios where you have to kind of sit in the room and see who's walking in and you have to investigate but you are you investigating from that point of friendship or are you investigating from point of neutrality when somebody's walking through because the danger can walk into the room but you have to be knowing how to look for it right 
absolutely. And so uh, ultimately it's back to the attitude when somebody walks into the room and we're in a victim's position, the likelihood of alarm bells going off in the mind are very high. But when we are, um, let us say, in a winner's position, feeling self-confident and everything is okay, and we have that mentality, then when a stranger walks into the room, the likelihood of the alarm bells going off in the mind are much lower. That in fact, they're probably much more reality-based rather than automatic pilot. But in both cases, we need to wake up. Either to wake up to the fact that the people here present no danger in reality, or to wake up also to the fact that, and here I am freaking myself out about it. <laughs> that there really is no danger. That I knew when that lightning struck and that thunder clapped that I was safe. I already knew that. Why did I know that? Because I knew that I knew that there had been lightning. And that was enough. Because if that lightning had to hit this house, I wouldn't have known it. It would have struck. Okay. Those kind of things are going to happen. They do on a regular basis. If we have deep wisdom, we can begin to stand out of the way so that when the lightning strikes, it doesn't hit you. But occasionally it is going to hit you. And the smarter you are, the more open you are, lightning's not going to catch you. And that's especially the kind of lightning that comes in the form of insults. When somebody insults you, calls you a name, Told you you don't know anything about the teaching of the Buddha, you're a dumb fool. You should shut your mouth. Those kind of things. <laughs> what? Who? <laughs> Missed me. So, those are the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or lightning strikes all on a regular basis. The question is, can you see that stuff coming before it actually hits you? This is what we mean by being able to see the dupa. There it is. Are you going to stand in the way and make yourself a target of that dupa incoming? And let it hit you and then complain and then start to plan your revenge? <laughs> Are you going to happily stand by and says, hey, you missed me? I think there's a song, I forgot who, who did it, but it wasn't too many years ago. Da, na, 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 na. Can't touch me. Heard that Hammer. song? Okay. I can't touch you, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I can't touch me. So that's the way that we begin to handle those things that come into the room, because if you already have the attitude that whatever happens, I can handle it because he can't get to me. He can't touch me. Only I can make myself hurt. He can't do it. All he can do is make himself feel bad. And if I can make friends with him, he might stop doing that, too. But he can't touch me. He can only 
throttle himself. So he's not my enemy. He does not know where my buttons are, is an old way of saying it. I used to say, in fact, when uh, uh, to make a joke out of it about 20, 30 years ago, I would say, you don't you you can't push my buttons because you don't know where my buttons are. Only my mom knows where my buttons are. But I don't have to say that anymore because you've been dead now these years. <laughs> so nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows where those buttons are. They've been well covered over, lathered up with uh, joy juice or something. So this is a way of looking at it. Is It doesn't matter who comes in the room. It doesn't matter what kind of incoming. It doesn't matter what happens. The fact is, is that we harm ourselves. That other people cannot harm us. Only we can harm ourselves. And when we become friends with ourselves, when we become champions of our own internal welfare, then we can treat others very well because they can't harm us. They can't hurt us. Only you can do that. And you're good at it. Oh, yeah. Really good at it because you've been practicing over and over and over and over again, getting your own goat. But now that we can see that those thoughts are unwholesome, and we can begin to make friends with it and begin to feel good about it. look what happened all of those years. But guess what? All of that stuff that I was doing at least kept me alive. So here I am. Thank you very much for the past. We're going to take things now into control we're not going to let automatic pilot run us anymore because it runs us into the ground sometimes so we're going to start watching where we're going this is the mindfulness is to wake up and take control of your own life Damarato, what do you think what do you think about reparenting about what the reparenting concept Psychology reparenting. Well, that's what we're doing here, isn't it now? That's precisely what we're doing. We're changing the, uh, the um, critical parent into the nurturing parent. We're setting mommy back about three to five years. Back to the time when mommies took care of their babies. We were all tender infants. We could poop any time we wanted to. We could throw up any time we wanted to. We could cry when we wanted to. We'd laugh when we wanted to. But by the time we were four years old, we got started to be ordered around. And by the time we were six, we were little soldiers being told what to do. And things got really critical. And so um, that parent ego state that we've got going now is normally just a set of rules, just a set of criticisms just a set of standards that we couldn't get live up to when we were children and so the feeling is now we can't live up to our own standards hence we need mercy we need a god we need a religion because we cannot live up to our own standards <laughs> and the and the trick is about the reparenting is just to change that criticism into nurturing again go back go back into time and start treating yourself like you were a valuable, tender infant that was happy and gurgling and smiling. 
with no place to go and no responsibilities. And you didn't have to do anything except be happy and watch all the adults around you start to be happy too. Until they want to put you to work. And then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and we feel obligated. We got to toe the line and do what we're told to do. So be careful of those kind of critical thoughts. So that you can replace them with nurturing thoughts. Never mind, I don't have to do anything right now. I don't have to go anyplace. I don't have to do anything. Everything is all right right now. This is the nurturing reparenting that we're doing by changing it from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. Does that make sense? What uh, what would be a correct way to put this into social context with others who not know about noble? Um, the answer to that, number one, is, is that we gain great benefit by being around others who are of the same mind that we are, especially if it's a wholesome relationship with wholesome people, nobles, that one of the best ways to learn the Dharma is by living with nobles. Start having noble thoughts, and when you come to them with your ignorant thoughts, they'll laugh and joke, set you straight, bring you back to noble thoughts. So, friendship. They hurt you. Pardon? Your nobles hurt you. They, they hurt so, you. All those people. The nobles don't hurt you, so you have to be careful of who you associate with. The, the nobles in the background that are barking now. Oh, yes, yes, yes. They heard you talking about them. <laughs> okay, well, we actually, uh, there was a, a doggy pincer movement. This lady had to drive the bike on the pathway out to the... Um, uh, the farm, jungle, everything back there. And they had to pass between that dog and this one. So these two dogs are having a uh, conversation about it while the lady ignores them completely. <laughs> so anyway, back to the point about reparenting. Yes, that whole quality or concept of reparenting came from Eric Byrne, who uh, was a student of Freud, who came through that uh, developmental psychology stuff that Freud was both lauded for and accused for. In fact, he was more accused of some of the other weird ball stuff. But I mean, he was a start. He got things rolling. To start looking at behaviors and start associating behaviors and feelings. The whole world. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
Reparenting is exactly what we're going to do. That in fact, you could talk about this reparenting is the second fetter of the Buddha. The first fetter is personality view of figuring out that you can change, that you're not a fixed being. And that the more you understand that, the more you recognize that you yourself is a moving target. Get out of your own way. <laughs> And then the second fetter is this fetter of Sila Bhatta Paramasa. It's the reparenting job. It's to take out all of that criticism and replacing it with nurturement. To begin to tell yourself everything is really fine. Everything is okay. This is what we mean by the wholesome thoughts. To gladden the mind. To brighten up. To recognize that this present moment is a whiz-bang present moment. Split it up. It's not dangerous. It's not demanding anything. It's not requiring anything of you. It's just to sit and enjoy the fact that you don't really have any requirements right now. Any job that needed to be done has been done. That's one of the phrases of the Buddha. That when the mind is clear as a polished shell, when your mind is clear, then any jobs that needed to be done have been done. Which means that the only job, the only real job that we'll ever have is to clean junk out of our clock. That's our only job. And after that, it just ticks fine by itself. So always go around thinking about when you do think about it. When I say always, I'm not talking about second by second, minute by minute kind of always. But whenever you remember, just remember that the job that you needed to do has just now been done, but you have come back to the present moment. Well, what a relief, job done. And allow that to be a very relaxing. Here's an example of that. In the South, and uh, in, even into the 1950s, my mother, white girl still had to pick cotton because it was part of the family and in fact uh, she's told stories about grandpa would make bets with them lose the bets rebet with them and then win and play with them to get the kids to pick more and more and more cotton but when the sun goes down you can't pick cotton anymore and you quit and everybody at that point, wherever they are in the field, they set that bag of cotton down and sit on it and relax. They don't even leave the field. The sun's already going down. Time to rest right now. So think about sitting down on that bale of cotton. As soon as you remember, hey, job done. Time to rest. Set the burden down and sit on it and relax. And this is how we practice, and we practice that way just as soon as we catch that incoming anxiety. As soon as that somebody that's dangerous walks into the room, you can say, oh, wait a minute. In this present moment, they're not dangerous. I can see that. Let me sit down on my bale of cotton and have a rest and enjoy the moment. I might be able to learn something just by observing them. I don't have to say anything. 
So this is a way of practicing when people come into the room or when we have anxiety, any of that kind of unwholesome behavior, we can catch it. If we can see it, we can change it. If we can't see it, then how could we change it? This is why we practice sati is to wake up and then investigate, take a look. What kind of crap have I got going on now? <laughs> and then we say, wait a minute, I don't have to do any of that stuff. Out it goes and I can sit down on my bale of cotton and just rest. Ah, wow, I don't have to do that. I don't have to think about that right now. Just relax. We practice that over and over and over and over. Just this breath. <sighs> then the old machine will start back up again and you say, aha, I see you. And then take another breath. Well, not so fast, but over and over again. <laughs> over and over and over again we practice. To just let it go, job done. What needed to be done has been job, has been done. That's the way of practicing. That's the teaching of the Buddha. That's the gladdening in the mind. And the body can rest, relax. And that's how we clean our clock. It doesn't take long. Gosh, it takes so much longer to describe it than it does the actual doing it. So, Carl, do you have anything to say? Oh, no. I, I, I think, I, like, I looked initially when I asked the question. Even I look at these thoughts and I look at the thoughts of, like, judging someone or, or, or attacking them in, in the space. And now I can see them and be like, aha, I see you. I like you, but I don't need you. I can enjoy, I can even <laughs> enjoy, like, a little judgment and be like, wow, that's so funny. That is really funny. It's really enjoyable. I can just sit in. <laughs> And let that kind of go. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, get a big load out of look how hard I tried, but I'm not anymore. <laughs> that's excellent, guys. That's excellent. Beta, how about you? You have any closing remarks that you want to have? Um, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And the other thing, uh, something I wanted to ask is the uh, theater of the spiritual entertainment in Siam. You know that? Uh, are you referring to the spiritual theater at Watsu and Mo? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. And in, on the, on the facade. The Dhamma is extraordinarily entertaining and it's wholesome. <sighs> On the facade is this uh, uh, Egyptian picture. Do you know what this is called? Oh, yes. Not only do I know about it, but I've got several copies of photographs of it. And it is common. It's almost one of the established requirements of any wad in, in Thailand who has anything to do with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa 
some form of that thing will be there. Some of them don't have an Egyptian motif. Some of them will have an Indian motif. Some of them are done as paintings. Some are done as mandalas. Uh, some of them are done as uh, tile. So yes, it's a very famous drawing within the teachings of the Buddha. And let me explain to you what it is. First off, you'll see some uh, Egyptian dude sitting on a chair and beside his right hand is a basket full of eyes. And then in the foreground, you'll see several people. One of them is bowing in respect, wearing the eye. Another one is fitting his eye on. And a third one is receiving the eye. And, and then up in the uh, right-hand corner is a whole crowd of people without any eyes running with their hands in the air away. <clears throat> okay. This is the drawing uh, or the... Um, the the point is is that it takes a while for you to get the eye fitted but once you can see you know that you can see but you also recognize that many many people will run away from the dhamma it is not for everyone but this is hard for us to understand this is part of the reason why buddhism doesn't proselytize because we're going to be wasting our time almost all of the time but when somebody wants the Dhamma, when somebody's willing to come take the eye, there'll be someone there to give it to them. Now you are answering my question about the social context. Mm -hmm. Right. Who are you going to associate with? Those who are putting their Dhamma eyes on or those in the crowd that are running away from reality? Headless. Ignorant. Mm. But in fact, associating with the wise, associating with those who have the wisdom eye, that's what we mean by the word Sangha, the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So in a way, the guy who is holding the eye, that's Buddha. The eye itself is the Dhamma, and those who are standing around with their eyes open is the Sangha. Wow, you can get so much out of that one picture. <laughs> do, do you know what it's called? Uh, I know that there's a Thai word for it, but I don't remember the Thai word, nor did I ever know what it meant. I ask you again someday. I don't even know who to ask. Mm -hmm. It's such is such a um, I couldn't found it never nowhere. I just couldn't found it. The only the only image I found was through the Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa documentary. Okay. Um, actually, Google spiritual theater. Just those two words. Mm, I did. Do it again and, and see what happens with that spiritual theater. You come up with uh, some images, so click on images rather than the text and start scrolling down through all of the images that you see. 30 minutes scrolling. 
<laughs> you might also find in the spiritual theater inside there is a lot of art from uh, Emmanuel Sherman. He's done a lot of spiritual art. Then, in fact, on the uh, Skype now, we're passing back and forth a lot of that spiritual art. One of the monks, by the way, that went with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa to India became quite enamored with Indian art and came back to watch Suanmok and developed a style of making coins that are about a meter across, made out of cement, about maybe uh, four or five centimeters thick, and have the art stamped on one side. And there were hundreds of those with all kinds of drawings all over Watsuan Mok, and many of them are still just all over the place, but a number of them have been collected to put around the spiritual theater. And in fact, there, it, was a, um, it was an ongoing industry for years. But this, this old monk would, uh, he had already the forms. It was almost like a Chinese block painting with wooden blocks on uh, wet cement. And many of them have an Indian motif. So you can find, uh, uh, in fact, they've got a, a panorama or a big arch where they've got about 10 or 12 of those uh, mandalas that are there if you look for. You might also use the word Buddhadasa, that might help narrow the uh, image focus. But yes, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was very, very big on uh, visual arts, and he attracted a lot of artists that would take on his motifs and, and put art there. Actually, it's quite an adventure. It takes literally hours for a guided tour to go through the whole spiritual theater. There's just so many things that are there that are worth looking at. One, yeah, of, them is, one of them is a really, really huge Tonka drawing of Patitra Samupada with the bear in his mouth and the 12 steps of dependent origination are done around in the circle. And so there's that kind of art. There's also an art, one that's really interesting, yeah. It has a set of stairs to heaven, and there's great big stairs on this wall that goes up to the ceiling, and you can see the kind of uh, cloudy, magical kind of stuff at the end of this uh, uh, staircase. And at the bottom of the stairs is a priest, a rabbi, mm. a, a monk. <laughs> And they're standing there, all arm in arm, to prevent people to go up the stairs. Mm. You need the wisdom eye. <laughs> right, it's, it's wisdom art. There's another one that's done by Emmanuel Sherman that has to do with it's a background of a bamboo forest. And in the front is a, a kind of a stick drawing playing a wooden bamboo flute. And, and the caption is, the sound of the bamboo flute returns to the forest. Wow. 
So this was the kind of stuff that uh, uh, Emmanuel Sherman, my favorite, is um, a fat Buddha up in the uh, mostly left-hand upper uh, quadrant of the, the, the piece of art. Down below is a town which looks like a valley that's in, in the mountains. And then the top, right above the fat monk's head, is uh, freedom is now, except that the F itself is a salamander. Was a what? Salamander. Uh. A gecko. Okay, it's mm. a, 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 a tiny little lizard in the in the shape of an F with his head one way and the tail another. You know, that's the okay. <clears throat> and then the caption along the right hand side is. This is a quote. Listen carefully. Oh, boundless joy to find at last there is no happiness in the world. Oh, boundless joy to find at last there is no happiness in the world. There he is sitting above it in uh, above the mountains, above the town, above it all. Transcendent, Okatara, supermundane, is that. Oh, boundless joy to find it last. There is no happiness in the world. Yet we talk from childhood to go out into the world and seek your happiness, and it ain't there. <laughs> yeah. And when you find out that there is no happiness in the world, that's when deep, boundless joy sets in. You've got the goal of that. Truly free. Truly free. Free is now. Yeah. So this is the kind of stuff that you find in the spiritual field. Good stuff. Thank you. I'm looking forward to see it one day. Um, well, I'm sure that much of it is already on the internet. In person. Oh, come on by. I'll take you for a tour. I will take you on that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Someday COVID will be gone. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's time. So this has been a really delightful talk. Thank you guys for putting up. This has been great. Any any parting words? Anybody got any last things to say? This is it. This is it. Free is now. Oh, boundless joy to find at last. But there is no happiness in the world between your ears. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Yeah. All right.